Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Our text reads, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Focusing upon that command of the Apostle Paul, Purge out therefore the old leaven. By what standard is a church to determine who should or should not come to the Lord's Supper? In today's democratic and pluralistic ecclesiastical climate, such a question may seem to border on the ridiculous. For indeed, most churches make no serious attempt to keep any who desire to come to the Lord's Supper from the table. In some churches, the Lord's Supper is open to all who desire to come. In other churches, the pastor may issue a warning to those gathered that none should come to the Lord's Supper except those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation. In still other churches, the elders may actually meet with the visitors before the service and seek to learn whether the visitors do in fact profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ before coming to the Lord's Supper. While in a very few churches, the elders examine all those coming to the Lord's Supper in both doctrine and life, and those who are either ignorant or unsound in doctrine or lawless in life are kept from the Lord's table. This last view is the view which this church embraces by way of conviction and it is called close communion. Not closed communion, but close communion. And we will affirm that this is the teaching of Scripture as well. Why is it important to know who should and who should not come to the Lord's Supper. You may ask, what difference does it really make? Well, perhaps the Corinthian church at one time also asked the very same questions, but they came to see that God is supremely concerned as to who should come to the Lord's table. For some in Corinth, you'll recall, it made a very great difference. For they were coming to the Lord's table unworthily and were eating and drinking, Paul says, judgment to themselves as they partook of the bread and of the wine. In fact, some within Corinth had suffered God's holy and righteous judgment through physical suffering. And even some had suffered death for coming unworthily to the Lord's table. And we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Thus, at the very heart of Paul's message to the Corinthians is the truth that not all are permitted to come to the Lord's table. Not even all professing Christians, Paul would explain, 
are to come to the Lord's table. For many of those who were enduring, enduring the, the suffering, the judgment of God, were enduring it as from a father who was chastening them. Not because they were unbelievers, but because they were believers and coming unworthily. They should not have come in that condition and in that situation. But someone may ask, what is so significant about the Lord's Supper that God would set such a, a hedge, a boundary, a fence about the table in warning us not to come unworthily? Well, dear ones, the Lord's Supper is a holy ordinance instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ, wherein the death of our Lord is showed forth, and by which death he purchased our eternal salvation, purchased the salvation of all who place their faith and trust in him. You see, dear ones, the unfathomable love and riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ are set forth visibly in these elements and in these actions that are performed at the Lord's Supper. And worthy partakers feed upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. They grow in, their great, in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as they partake in faith, and as they partake worthily. But those who would approach the Lord's table unworthily while living in scandalous sin or error, profane or make common the very death of our Savior, who died to deliver us from the very things that such are practicing in their lives or the, the very doctrines that they believe that are in error. God through Christ, came to deliver us from those things. And so it is to, to make uh, profane and common the Lord's Supper. It is to make it common when it is most holy. However, the sin of coming unworthily to the Lord's Supper is not only the sin of one who partakes, but I would have you carefully note that it is also the sin of those who tolerate it and who allow such to come to the Lord's table. In other words, the elders, the pastor, who permit it, share and partake of the sins of those who come unworthily. In Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26, the indictment against God, against the priests at that time, is that they have profaned the holy things of God in not making a distinction between that which is holy and that which is common. And so, ministers do today. And not making a distinction in the Lord's Supper between that which is a holy supper and that which is a common supper. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, the Lord Jesus <clears throat> utters these words. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Those who are unworthy, again, ought not to be given that which is holy at that table.
In Revelation 2.20, the Lord speaks to the churches and he indicts the elders, the leaders of that church for tolerating and allowing certain errors to be promoted within the congregation, not dealing with them, not bringing these who are promoting false teaching to trial, living with it, getting along with it. The Lord says, I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we could say the Lord says that about all false teaching. I hate false teaching. I hate that which is contrary to my word. I hate that which is contrary to my commandments. Whether in doctrine or whether in life. So the Lord Jesus says. And in 1 Timothy 5.22, elders can, we see, partake of the sin of others by laying their hands upon one who is not yet qualified to be an elder or a minister. And the apostle tells Timothy, don't do so, because if you lay your hand suddenly upon a man who is not ready, and is disqualified for some reason, you partake of his sins. And in like manner, when we figuratively, as elders, lay our hands upon members of the congregation or visitors and invite them to the table, who are those who should not come to the table, we, by the same token, partake of their sins. And thus we see that God himself demonstrates that the Lord's Supper is not for just any who desire to come to it. Not even for any who profess to be Christians, but for those who are worthy to come to the table. I've divided the sermon this Lord's Day into the following main points. First of all, the context of our text considered. Secondly, an apostolic command considered. And thirdly, historical evidence considered. <clears throat> Let's consider then our context, first of all. The Apostle Paul, of course, is the human author of this letter sent to the Corinthian church. In this letter, Paul corrects various sins and errors that were coming into the church and that were dividing the members of the congregation one against the other. Paul spends some space addressing particularly abuses related to the Lord's Supper. You'll find those chapters, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he specifically addresses the abuses with regard to the Lord's Supper. However, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, our attention is drawn to a situation which speaks not so much directly, but rather indirectly to the subject of, of the Lord's Supper. It appears from the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that the church in Corinth, through its eldership, had permitted a professing believer to continue 
in church communion and fellowship, the living in scandalous sin, unrepentant sin. Now, the particular uh, scandalous sin in which this one was living was that of incest, whereby he had taken to himself his father's wife. Now, the law of God expressly forbade such a union, whether viewed as in a married state that he had actually married his father's wife or in an unmarried state that he was living with this woman outside of matrimony. In either case, the law of God in Leviticus 18.8 condemns this as incest. This man was living in express violation of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, Paul, within our context, severely rebukes the church of Corinth and its elders for not having taken the steps to remove this man from church communion. In 1 Corinthians 5, 2, he rebukes them. And then he proceeds to give them his authoritative response in verses 3 through 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says, in effect, this. This professing believer should be separated from the communion and fellowship of the church by means of excommunication. Now, excommunication literally means out of communion. Excommunication as we consider what it is, has two degrees. There is the lesser excommunication, which refers to a member who has been found guilty of scandalous sinner error and is kept from the communion table and yet is not put out of the church. He's simply kept from the communion table and he is admonished, however, in that state as a brother to repent. To turn from his sin, we find that lesser excommunication referred to in Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses six and fourteen. But there is also that which is called the greater excommunication, which refers to a member who has been found guilty of more aggravated and obstinate offenses, and is kept from the communion table, just like in the lesser excommunication. But in addition to that, he is put out of the visible church. We find this specifically established in Matthew 18:17, where the Lord says that those particular offenses that are not dealt with between two parties, then witnesses are involved and the offender does not listen and heed that which is given to him. It is to be brought to the church. And if he does not listen to the church, he is to be treated and viewed as a heathen and as a publican. He is to be put out of the church. Now, the point I do not want you to miss from this particular text is that when one is judicially and lawfully excommunicated, whether it is the lesser or whether it is the greater excommunication, in both cases, he is removed from communion at the Lord's table. That is one of the consequences 
of excommunication, he was removed in either case from the Lord's table. You cannot divorce, therefore, excommunication from the communion table. For, in fact, that is where the communion of the church is most visibly manifested when we set together around the Lord's table. You see, the excommunicated one may, in fact, come to hear the preaching of the word. Even if he's put out of the church by means of the greater excommunication, he may come and sit and hear the preaching of the word. But he cannot come to that place where the communion of the church is most visibly manifested at the table of the Lord. As we consider then our second main point, an apostolic command considered. The Apostle Paul, at this point, gives two specific commands in verses 5, I'm sorry, in verses 7 and 8. Two commands. The first command, purge out, therefore, the old leaven. And that's in verse 7. And the second command, therefore, let us keep the feast. That's the second command. One is a negative. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. The other is a positive. Therefore, let us keep the feast. This Lord's Day, we will focus on the first command. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. <clears throat> Paul uses the metaphor of leaven to describe the scandalous member of the church. For just as leaven, as you will recall, or yeast, was to be removed from Israel of old while celebrating the feast of the Passover, so this scandalous member was to be removed from the communion of the church until he manifested repentance, confession of sin, sought forgiveness, and endeavored new obedience. He was to be put away from the communion of the church in this case, because of the aggravated nature of his sin, by means of the greater excommunication. Paul says that he was to be delivered to Satan. That is, he was to be taken out of the visible expression of Christ's church, and he was to be put outside of that. He may be a member of the invisible church because he is truly regenerate, but having been placed outside of the visible church, he is placed into the domain of the enemy. He is delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, of, those, of that sin that was prevalent in his life. And carefully note that excommunication here is not and should not be ever considered as retributive justice. 
as a, or as a sentence of eternal condemnation. Even the greater excommunication, dear ones, is always with a view to repentance of restoring him who has fallen. It always has in effect, it always has as its goal, love for that one who has been put out of the church. That in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, his soul might be saved. You see, excommunication is not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is retributive justice, which the civil magistrate is to mete out. But that is not what we find with regard to excommunication. The church in doing so, obeys the Lord so as to restore the offender. It is rather remedial discipline, not retributive justice. And in fact, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that this one who was put out of the church was in fact restored. Paul tells the Corinthians, don't continue to neglect to restore this one. That his sorrow and his grief become so great that he becomes calloused and hardened. But restore him. Sufficient is the discipline that he has now endured. Bring him back into communion with the church. And so it's never, ever out of hatred that any are prevented from... Communion in the visible church. And by implication, it is never out of hatred that any are prevented from coming to the Lord's table. Never, ever out of hatred. But out of love for their soul and a desire to see them repent of their sin and error. Because those elders who take the communion table seriously love those who are in their congregation and visitors who come to worship with them because they love them. They have an obligation sometimes to do what is very hard and to say, under the circumstances, you need to repent of certain things in your life before coming to this table. Those, dear ones, who are prevented from coming to the Lord's table, whether they are members or whether they are visitors from another church, are not thereby necessarily declared to be unbelievers. That's a myth. That is not what we promote at all. We do not declare those who are prohibited from coming to the Lord's table to be unbelievers. Rather, they may be viewed as brethren who are presently walking disorderly. As Paul himself says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and in that circumstance with disorderly brethren, Paul says our duty is to withdraw from them. And withdrawing from them does not mean that we invite them to the Lord's table with us under those specific circumstances in which they are disorderly. 
Although the leaven to which Paul here refers is specifically in the life of this one, this man who was committing incest, is a form of immorality. It has to do with his life and his character. The word leaven may also refer to error and false teaching. Leaven may refer to that which is practiced in one's life. It may also refer to that which one believes and professes with his mouth. It's very important, again, that we make this distinction, make this known. For example, in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, the Lord Jesus says in verse 6, Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. What was Jesus speaking of? Was he simply speaking of some violation as to their life and practice? Certainly there would be those. But what was he specifically referring to? Was he referring to their life or to their doctrine? Well, in verse 12 of the same chapter, We find these words, then understood they how that he, that is Jesus, bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And so as we read what the apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, purge out the old leaven. Let us understand that the old leaven may refer to that which is contrary to God's commandments in life, and it also refers to that which is contrary to God's commandments in doctrine. Thus, I would submit to you, dear ones, Paul would no more tolerate the leaven of scandalous error around the communion table than he would tolerate the leaven of scandalous sin in life around the communion table. Paul declares that leaven in all of its forms, whether in life or in doctrine, is to be purged out. It is to be marked out and not to be tolerated within the visible church of the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, and certainly not around the communion table. Those passages in the scripture which command us to withdraw from those who maintain and promote false teaching also infer that they are to be kept from the communion table, the faithful church. For example, when we read in Romans 16, 17, The words of the Apostle Paul, where he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. The implication also 
applies to the communion table. You can't hardly avoid those who are causing division contrary to the doctrine which we have received from the apostles and which our faithful forefathers have passed on to us and at the same time invite them to the communion table. It can't happen. That's not avoiding them. It is important, dear ones, to note the double standard that exists in most churches today when it comes to the Lord's table. What are churches saying when they will keep from the Lord's table those who manifest the leaven of scandalous sin, but who will not keep from the Lord's table those who manifest the leaven of scandalous error? What they're really saying, in effect, is we will not allow unrepentant breakers of the last six commandments, which express our duty to our neighbor to profane the Lord's Supper and thereby bring judgment upon themselves. But we will allow unrepentant breakers of the first four commandments, which express our duty to God to profane the Lord's Supper and bring judgment thereby upon themselves. Which commandment did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Our larger catechism states that under the first commandment are comprised false opinions and heresies. And they are forbidden by the first commandment. False opinions and heresies are forbidden. Under the second commandment, our larger catechism says that, quote, any worship not instituted by God himself is forbidden. Under the third commandment, our larger catechism says, violating of our oaths and vows, if lawful, and the maintaining of false doctrines are forbidden. And under the fourth commandment, our larger catechism says that all needless works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations are forbidden. That is, on the Sabbath, they are forbidden. How many churches, dear ones, are willing to keep from the Lord's table those who live in the scandalous sin of adultery, but are unwilling to keep from the Lord's table those who believe and practice the scandalous errors of false doctrine, corrupt worship, covenant-breaking, and Sabbath-breaking. I submit to you, beloved, that that is a grievous double standard practiced by countless churches today. And God help us to be faithful in our testimony against that unfaithful practice and to uphold the truth. But allow me one more point to make by way of a conspicuous example as to, to, to the kind of sinful double standard that exists in many churches as it relates to those who come to the Lord's Supper Terms of communion, you'll remember from a previous sermon, terms of communion, that phrase, 
are those principles in a church which either expressly or implicitly identify why that church exists as a separate body from all other churches on the face of this earth and upon what terms they will unite with any other church. That's what we refer to when we refer to terms of communion. Why are we separated from all these churches? Why are we not one in the same church with, uh, same church with all of these churches? And upon what terms or bases or conditions will we unite with any of these churches? Those are a church's terms of communion. And every church has them. Otherwise, if they didn't have terms of communion, they would be united with every other church upon the face of the earth. They may not be expressed explicitly, but they certainly are implicitly by the fact that they remain separated from every other church. And those terms of communion that do separate other churches, separate churches from other churches, may or may not be biblical. But every church should be able to give you a reason why they are not united with the church down the street. Those are their terms of communion. Now, following that line of thinking with regard to terms of communion, terms of communion, dear ones, imply that division within the body of Christ is a heinous sin. Sinful division within the body of Christ is a heinous sin. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, the Lord Jesus says that a house divided against itself cannot stand. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, he commands that there be no divisions amongst you. It is a sin when those divisions are for sinful reasons. Unity, which is based upon the truth, is what is commanded, however, in Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10 that we're to have the same mind, one mind, one judgment. In worship, we're to have one voice. We're to worship God the same way. We're not to have various ways and practices of worshiping God. <clears throat> Amos asked the question, can two walk together unless they be, unless they be agreed? The implication of the, the rhetorical question is, of course not. They can't walk together. And so, unity is based upon the truth. In terms of communion, therefore, assume that it is, as I said, a grievous sin to remain divided from another church where there is no compelling reason to remain divided. For terms of communion, assume that it is Christ's revealed will that his people be one in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. You remember Christ's prayer before he died in John 17? He prayed that we would be one, even as he was one with his Father. Not simply mystically and spiritually as it pertains to the invisible church, because the Lord says in that context, that when his church manifests that oneness, that unity, that the world will know that the Father sent the Son. How 
can the world know that the Father has sent the Son when we are divided into and fragmented and rent Christ's body into thousands of pieces visibly, but maintain invisibly we're one. That's not going to bring the world to acknowledge that the Father sent the Son until there is a visible manifestation of that oneness in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. And the communion table, being amongst the highest privileges of church communion and fellowship, becomes the place where one may test whether a church's terms of communion are sincerely held or whether they are mere window dressing, whether a church is consistent or inconsistent with its terms of communion. For if a church maintains a separate existence from all these other churches because of its stated terms of communion, it says we cannot unite with them. We must be divided from them. And the implication is there's something sinful that exists in that particular church by which we cannot unite with them. Either in life or in doctrine, we cannot unite with them because of these particular issues. Such a church cannot avoid being charged with the sin of unnecessarily rending the body of Christ into parts. If that same church that's divided from another church then invites that church from which, which it's separated, invites its members to enjoy the communion table with it. One has to ask, why are you divided? If you can invite the members of that church to the highest privilege within the church which illustrates, manifests visibly, the communion, the oneness that we are to share in Christ in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. If you can invite them here and yet be separated from them, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. If the separation from another church is not significant enough to keep that church's members from the communion table, then I submit their separation is unlawful. And if the separation from another church is significant to, enough to keep that church's members from the communion table, then I submit that such a church takes its terms of communion seriously. They take their terms of communion seriously. If they are willing to say these terms are the terms that we will unite with another church and enjoy together fellowship around the communion table, they take their terms of communion seriously. But in the case where those elders in churches, Reformed churches and non-Reformed churches as well, where elders in such a case allow members of other churches from whom they're separated to come to the Lord's table, I submit to you that they are guilty of one of three sins. Number one, they're either guilty of sinful division and remaining separate from the church whose members they invite to the communion table. Or, secondly, they are guilty of adhering themselves to sinful terms of communion and they manifest it by allowing others to their communion table saying our terms of communion really are meaningless. We shouldn't have them. And therefore, to use them and to remain separate from other churches is sinful. Or thirdly, they are guilty of sinful toleration of leaven of error 
around the communion table and thus profaning the name of the Lord and bringing God's judgment upon themselves and others. The first command of the Apostle Paul, dear ones, to the church of Corinth is to purge out the leaven of sin and error, lest they in Corinth become partakers of others' sins and errors by their toleration, and lest the whole loaf be leavened. Because that is the natural effect of tolerating sin and error within a congregation, it will leaven the whole loaf the testimony of that church will wane and will become ineffective. It will become nondescript. You won't be able to distinguish it from any other body on the face of the earth. And we will not leave to our children a faithful testimony to the truth, dear ones. My last main point is simply to give to you a couple pieces of historical evidence to corroborate what Paul has just said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. John Calvin, in, his, in Calvin's Ecclesiastical Advice, page 155, we find these words uh, from John Calvin as he was writing, uh, giving advice to those who were asking about, about coming to the Lord's table. <clears throat> And uh, some were a little perturbed, very concerned that the examination to come to the Lord's table was so difficult. Some were upset about that. But Mr. Calvin is quoted as saying, For everyone to be admitted to the Lord's Supper without distinction or selection is a sign of contempt that the Lord cannot endure. The Lord himself distributed the supper to his disciples only. Therefore, anyone not instructed in the doctrine of the gospel ought not to approach what the Lord has instituted. No one should be distressed when his Christianity is examined even down to the finest point when he is admitted to the Lord's Supper it should be established as a part of the total state and system of discipline that ought to flourish in the church that those who are judged unworthy should not be admitted. And I would also cite for you not only the words of Mr. Calvin, but his example. His example with regard to the libertines in Geneva and in particular, one of those, Bertellier, one of the most offensive libertines. Just before this particular incident, the church, because of Bertellier's errors, had excommunicated him from the church. However, the council, the civil council, had in effect pardoned him and, uh, and removed the excommunication of the church in Geneva and thereby admitted him to the various privileges and liberties of the church. Mr. Calvin was faced with a dilemma. Shall he follow the dictates of the civil magistrate whom he was convinced 
had ruled unlawfully? Or should he, at the threat of his own life, if necessary, keep this one and others like him from coming to the Lord's table? On that particular Lord's Day, when communion was celebrated, Mr. Calvin would not allow any, like Mr. Bertellier, any of the Libertines who were armed with sword, would not allow any of them to the table. And he was quoted as saying, I will die sooner than this hand shall stretch forth the sacred things of the Lord to those who have been judged despisers. Beza, Calvin's successor and historian of Calvin's life, says that after Calvin uttered these words to the congregation assembled, that the libertines approached no further to the table of the Lord. And Beza notes, the sacrament was celebrated with extraordinary silence, not without some degree of trembling, as if the deity himself were actually present. The awe and the fear of our God was upon that congregation because of a faithful minister who would not compromise that table. Dear ones, the communion of Christ's body and blood is too precious to us to profane it by allowing the scandalous leaven of sin and error to permeate it. We treat the Lord's death, dear ones, with shame and contempt if we as elders allow it to be so leavened. And we leave our children not a sacred meal. We leave our children a mere common meal. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, cause the fear of the Lord to reign in our congregation. Cause, Father, deep humility to be in our hearts and our lives. Put us to shame for how, even presently, through our sins, that we shame and dishonor the name of Christ. Give to us the spirit of repentance. Let us not stand in arrogance, pointing our fingers at others when we partake of the same sin. Give to us, Father, a spirit of repentance, desire to turn into Christ, to not flee from Christ, but to flee unto him as he avails himself to all who will come to him and take his yoke upon them. O Lord, our God, we do pray that this holy meal would continue to be proclaimed faithfully, practiced faithfully, and that the gospel of salvation, the doctrine which Christ has given to us, would be professed as we partake together of the Lord's Supper 
We do ask, Lord, that thou would cause ministers and elders from those congregations which profess to be reformed to awaken to the biblical duty as well as to the inheritance which has been given to them by their forefathers, for this was the practice of our forefathers. We do ask, Lord, that thou would grant to us the grace, even in perilous times when it is unpopular, when we will be likely criticized greatly for holding this position, nevertheless to embrace it because it is the truth and to promote it. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.